This reading is taken from Luke chapter 4, verse 4 to 13. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be with you again. Let me start with a true story about a minister who parked his car in a no-parking zone because he had a short time. He was going to visit a parishioner who was ill and uh, couldn't find a space with a meter. So he put a note under the windscreen and said, I have circled this area for 10 minutes and been unable to find a parking space. And then just to show that he was really about special business, he, uh, he put a, at the end, Father, forgive us our trespasses, and signed it, Reverend, dot, dot, dot. When he returned, he found a parking ticket from a police officer uh, and pinned to it was a note. I've circled this area for 10 years and if I don't give you a ticket, I will lose my job. Lead us not into temptation. (laughs) So that is what we're talking about this morning is uh, a temptation of Jesus. And I'm sure you're aware that the context of a biblical passage is always important. And so we need to look at the context of this particular scene. Just before our passage in Luke, uh, we have the, the baptism of Jesus. And we're told there that the heavens opened, the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form as a dove, and a voice said, this is my son, with you I am well pleased. And then in Luke 3, just before our passage, Luke inserts Jesus' genealogy. And whereas Matthew starts Jesus' genealogy with Abraham, uh, Luke goes all the way back to Adam, and that's very important for what we're studying today. Luke is wanting to say that Adam had a unique relationship with God because he was directly created. But Jesus has an even greater unique relationship to God because he is virgin-born, he is the divine son of the Most High God. Adam also had a unique relationship to humanity. He wasn't born from the womb, and he was, according to Scripture, the human being from which all of us come. 
But Jesus has an even greater unique relationship to a new type of humanity, which he saves by dying to repair our broken relationship with the Father because of our sin. Now, Adam was tempted. We all know about that. And he failed, which had dire consequences for all his descendants. But Jesus is tempted and does not fail and has wonderful and victorious consequences for all who believe and follow him. So Luke is trying to show us that Jesus is like a new Adam, entering into a crucial battle to redeem a new kind of people, a people that will have the opportunity to hear about Jesus. So when we read the the account of Jesus' temptation, we have to realize that there's a huge amount at stake here. If Jesus fails, he will be no different from Adam. He will be no different from all the people uh, subsequently who have failed temptation. But if Jesus succeeds, he will be able to liberate a people who will also learn from him how to do battle with the devil to escape the fog of his lies and his evil schemes. So let's watch Jesus in action together. He's 30 years old. He's just been acclaimed by God to be God's son. And stretching out before him are three years of mounting conflict. I don't know if you noticed at the end of that reading, it said the devil left him until an opportune time. That's a very dark statement, isn't it? And uh, when we are tempted and we think we've overcome, don't, be, don't start thinking it's done now because he will leave you for an opportune time, normally when we're at our lowest ebb. So three years of mounting conflict, which he knows is going to end in his crucifixion. So how does he prepare for these three years? Number one, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit. And this is how the time begins in the wilderness. He is soon going to respond to the devil's test by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 3, which says, mankind does not live by bread alone. And the Old Testament passage there in Deuteronomy 8 is a passage that starts by telling us that the Israelites were also led into the wilderness to be tempted by God. Led by God to be tempted by God. So there's a clear parallel here. And of course we're touching on the mystery of how the persons of the Trinity interrelate and we don't have time to go into that this morning. But what we can definitely say is this, that the divine nature of Jesus does not cancel out or limit his human nature and therefore, crucially, as a human being who faces the same temptations, the same conflict with the devil, he draws on the same Holy Spirit that you and I have when we face our temptations. Secondly, there are 40 days of solitude. Jesus moved away from his family, his friends, the crowds, and he went out into the wilderness for 40 days, almost six weeks, into the Judean wilderness, which is a wild, barren region near the Dead Sea, just to the west of it, 
between the Dead Sea and the Hebron Mountains. It was solitary. There was nothing else there. Today we think of solitude as being away from noise, away from busyness, maybe away from family and friends, perhaps away from radio, social media, Twitter, Instagram, all those. So I'll just mention those so you know I know them. <laughs> and this wasn't the only time for Jesus. This was something he did frequently. We always read in the New Testament, he got up early because he wanted to be alone. In a busy schedule, he moved away from the crowds and he would say to his disciples, let's get away to a quiet place. So it must be that discipleship demands solitude at times. And I would say that we simply can't maintain battle lines against the devil's temptations under an unbroken barrage of human interaction, whether that's remote or whether it's through media or whether it's through face-to-face. We need to be quiet. We need times to be alone. We need to have a connection with the Father by doing that. The Sunday night Julian meetings provide for that. So do that. And if you can't make those, find a place in your day where you can be absolutely quiet. Most of the time I'm talking to people, counselling people over the internet. And they're busy people. They are people who've got a lot on their plate. um, And very often I hear them saying, I'm really struggling with this and this and this. And I I would say to them, when did you last spend ten minutes in absolute quietness? And they can't think of a time. So I instruct people, ten minutes in the morning, ten minutes at night, just take it out of your busy day, get into a place where nobody is going to disturb you, read a verse of scripture, and then think about that verse in those ten minutes. And that's all it takes, just to be quiet, to focus on God, and you you find uh, your peace again. And actually, I would say the depth and the value of what we bring to those around us is dependent on those quiet times with God and what we learn from him. Thirdly, fasting. During these 40 days of solitude, Jesus didn't eat anything. And he didn't eat anything because he wanted to demonstrate that spiritual power is weakened to the degree that we can't say no to our bodily appetites. And that is the basis of self-denial through Lent. And in some way, our appetites take things for granted And so let me just remind you of what we were seeing on that uh, video uh, just a moment ago. We can spend too much time, but that time that we spend on things that uh, are frequent things in our lives can be suspended in favour of a superior attitude and appetite for God. It doesn't have to be food. You can fast from social media. You can fast from doing your own thing. And you can concentrate on something else that will help others. And that's a popular thing these days, is rather than thinking just of what you might give up during Lent, but what you might start during Lent. And so a really interesting um, verse that Jesus said was, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. 
So find something you can do for 40 days that you know is the will of God for you. And then there is these 40 days of combat. Luke gives us three examples of the temptations that Satan threw at Jesus. There may have been more, we don't know, but there certainly were these three. If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. I want you to notice, first of all, that if this wasn't possible for Jesus to do, turn these stones into bread, it wouldn't have been a temptation. So if you're in a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe in miracles, that's one of the things that you can point to, that even the temptations proved uh, that Satan knew, the devil knew, that he could do these things. And he quotes from Deuteronomy 8, as we've mentioned, where Moses tells Israel that God had led them and fed them for 40 years in this wilderness. And they'd learnt to be humbled. They'd learnt that God could be trusted to take care of them and to care for them. And Jesus masters his hunger and the desire for physical food by subordinating them to a greater desire of doing God's will. And then Satan shows him the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he says, all these I will give you if you will just fall down and worship me. And here I think the devil's uh, gone too far. He suggests that he himself is worthy to be worshipped by Jesus, and that he could generously give what was not his to his rightful owner. The Old Testament link here is found in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which we touched on last week, where the Israelites are commanded not to bow down to any other gods that uh, they might want to put before God himself. And that commandment was given just as they were creating in the valley below the golden calf, as we considered last Sunday. In essence, this temptation is designed to be a shortcut. And you will find that when you're up against it, many of the temptations you face will be designed to be a shortcut. Instead of persisting on this course that would ultimately cost Jesus his life, Jesus was being tempted to accomplish the same objective to be king of the whole world in another way. And then finally, Satan took Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple and he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, in Psalm 91, he will give his angels charge over you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan was urging Jesus to presume on God's protection, to willingly endanger himself. And the temptation, of course, was to find out whether God would be true to his word as well. So Psalm 91 is a challenge directly to Jesus' father. Uh, Jesus answers directly, it is written, you shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. Now in all this, Satan has one particular aim, to do whatever he could to keep Jesus from suffering. He was willing to let Jesus have all the glory and the authority of a world ruler, as long as it wouldn't be gained through suffering. He was eager to let Jesus use divine power as long as it was used to relieve suffering. And he was willing to let all his followers acknowledge his divine sonship as long as the angels of God would keep him 
from suffering. Remember, Jesus later says to his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem and he would be arrested and he would suffer and he would be killed. And Peter says, Lord, this cannot possibly happen to you. You cannot suffer in this way. Can you remember what Jesus' response was? Get behind me, Satan. That's right. You are a stumbling block to me. Again, the idea of suffering being something that uh, he should avoid. Why was Satan keen that Jesus should avoid suffering? Well, number one, because the suffering of Jesus would bring about Satan's downfall. But much more importantly, the suffering of Jesus was for our sin. That was all. And so if he didn't suffer in our place for our sin, then there would be no salvation for you or for me. And Satan's aim today is to hinder you from following Jesus in the way that he himself taught. Let me read from Luke 9 in the Amplified Version. If anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself, setting aside selfish interests, and take up his cross daily, expressing a willingness to endure whatever may come, and follow me. So let's turn our attention to the battle with temptation. Timothy calls it a good warfare. And Paul and Timothy call it a good fight. And it's good because the struggle with sin refines our faith. And it makes it like gold, says Timothy. Now in all these things, there's bad news and there's good news. And the bad news, number one, Satan is a liar. John chapter 8 says this, when he lies, he speaks according to his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. The first time Satan appears in the scripture is Genesis chapter 3, and the words on his lips show a suspicion for God's word. Did God say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And his next words are an outright lie. You will not die if you do. So we're dealing here with the essence of falsehood and deception. Many of them are half-truths. How many times has it gone through your head, you do not deserve to be a Christian? And if it hasn't gone through your head, it goes through many people's heads. And it's true, isn't it? We don't deserve to be a Christian. It's a half-truth, though. Because we're Christians not by what we deserve, but by what Jesus has done. And it's a free gift, and it's gracious, and it's ours, and we can call ourselves followers of Christ, Christians. It was true on the cross. If you are the Son of God, true. Get down from the cross. That wasn't God's plan, so it's not true. You saved others. So now save yourself. It's a half-truth again. The second bit of bad news is that he blinds the minds of unbelievers. Listen to Paul in Corinthians. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
Satan speaks what is false and hides what is true. And he, attempt, he, he attempts to keep people from hearing the gospel. So when you're talking to somebody about Jesus, one of the most important prayers that we often leave out or miss and uh, disregard from the New Testament is what Jesus says. He says, first bind the strong man. First bind the strong man. That's not a once and for all act. Otherwise we could do it now and go and live the rest of our lives in in great joy. No, this is something we do the moment we're talking to somebody about Jesus. Because there are going to be two powers that are involved at that point. There is the Holy Spirit who's trying to break through into this person's life with the truth of God and enable them to see the truth of the gospel. And there is Satan who is going to keep them blind and try and keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. So we need to pray, Lord, in your name, I bind the strong man as I speak to this person. So it's just the Holy Spirit's voice that is coming through loud and clearly. And often you hear and see when you're talking to somebody about Jesus, the struggle that they're in, in trying to grasp what you're saying. Well, that's the battle right there that is going on. Thirdly, Satan plucks the word of God out of people's heart and he chokes their faith. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told about the four types of soil with some falling on the path and birds quickly plucking it away? Jesus' explanation for that particular part of the parable is that Satan immediately comes and takes away the word which was sown in them. And then Satan, fourthly, accuses Christians before God night and day. And that's what it says in Revelation 12. This is a bit of the good news as well. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. The Hebrew word Satan, which, which we get Satan, means accuser. The devil is a Greek word, diabolos, from which we get our word diabolic, or diabolical. So um, take your pick, which one you choose. They're interchangeable in Scripture. So, shall we go to the good news? The path to victory here is just to hold fast to Jesus, who has already dealt a decisive blow. And I'm just going to read four scriptures to you, which is the good news. 1 John 3, verse 8. The Son of God, Jesus, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Jesus Christ took on human nature that through his death he might destroy him who has the power of death. That is, the devil. Colossians 2, verse 15. God disarmed the principalities and powers and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in him. And Revelation 20, verse 10. That's five, isn't it? One day, the warfare will be over. The devil will be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
So how do we do this battle? One last thought. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How do we resist the devil? The New Testament highlights prayer as the crucial element of every battle. Ephesians 6, take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all kinds of prayer and supplication. And Jesus calls us to that kind of battle praying. He says, watch at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things. And that's what he did for himself and he does for us. My last quote from scripture, and it's a lovely, reassuring one. Jesus said to Peter, Satan has asked to have you so that he may sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you're going through hardships and difficulties, if nobody else in the whole world is praying for you, Jesus is. I have prayed for you. Let's pray, shall we? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you went through the hardship, the loneliness, the pain, the suffering of those temptations and the following three years whenever the devil saw an opportune time. And we thank you, Lord, that you came through those, you overcame them. And that gives us hope, Lord, that when we face our temptations, when we go through hard times and and we immediately look for the shortcut, we thank you, Lord, that we have the same Holy Spirit in us who is able to remind us of your words and the fact that in you we have a victory over this temptation and everyone that comes our way. Lord, help us in this so that our discipleship may be a good fight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.